kicked off this half-hour block with Aaron Carter's I Want Candy, also a request. My challenge to you next time is we need some more women on your requests. Like, you guys listen to women singing or whatever. I had a Sky Ferreira song that I could have played if I didn't get so many requests, and I'm happy to do that, but that's just my... Just my challenge for you. Next week, the theme will be Vegas. So I'm playing us out with Katy Perry's Waking Up in Vegas. And I will see you next time. Enjoy Living Writers after a quick little Katy Perry dose. Thank you so much. This is WCBN-FM in Ann Arbor. I'm DJ Candy. This has been Afternoon Sugar Rush. you got to help me out. It's all a blur. that has left him with these chronic headaches. And as a result of the headaches, he uh, is prescribed uh, opiate uh, prescription painkillers and uh, develops an addiction to those painkillers. And so he's got uh, sort of these two mounting issues that are intertwined. Uh, And and at the beginning of the book, he moves to this uh, small town in uh, rural Northern California in order to get away from the city, get some space and time to uh, hopefully recover. Uh, and while he's there, he ends up meeting uh, this boat builder uh, whose name is Alejandro and, and begins to apprentice with him. And so the story uh, really uh, follows uh, Berg's relationship with Alejandro. Um, it's, it's sort of a coming-of-age story, although Berg is also kind of older than the typical coming-of-age story. It's not necessarily about, you know, uh, turning 18 and going off to college. He's he's done a lot of stuff in the world. He's pretty accomplished professionally, but he's also kind of uh, spiritually uh, underdeveloped in some ways. And and so he has sort of his modus operandi of how he engages with certain things. And uh, it just so happens that these challenges that he's facing in this particular moment don't respond uh, to that uh, type of uh, approach, and so he's forced to kind of uh, figure out a uh, new way of approaching uh, what's happening to him, and uh, and he learns that through his work uh, with Alejandro. I like what you said about it being a coming of age story, but this is kind of a new coming of age story um, because it's it's generationally different than what you think of as the maybe teenage one, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know. Uh, this gen- my generation is, uh, you know, we're very good at 
achieving things that are sort of uh, set out before us. Uh, and, and we've been kind of trained to do that very well. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're uh, a little bit less capable when it comes to sort of figuring out why we're doing something or, uh, you know, uh, sitting in that in, in the discomfort of not having a plan. And so that's kind of the, the state that Berg finds himself in at the beginning of at the beginning of the book. Well, the character has this really interesting and, and possibly more and more common um, scenario of working in in the tech industry in San Francisco and then kind of escaping it. And he escapes it for his own reasons. But is that part of that? That that uh, what yeah, you yeah, I think that is sort of the ladder that Berg has been on, and it's you know rewarding in certain ways, but it also uh, allows him to not actually have to really uh, reckon with his own uh, identity in a lot of ways. It's a, he is sort of uh, distracting himself, moving from sort of ever uh, looking to the future, uh, attaining new things, attaining promotions, more money. Making um, apps, doing the San Francisco tech thing, right? <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah. And he, uh-huh. doesn't, and he doesn't have to really sort of look at himself, and he becomes kind of a stranger to himself yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And he knows this on some level, knows he's become a stranger to himself, and yet also he's kind of caught up in in this whirlwind. And, you know, that's, I think, a pretty common experience for a lot of us. We, You know, our, our days and, and just sort of life in the 21st century is incredibly distract, full of distractions um, and full of uh, ladder climbing. And so uh, oftentimes it takes something like a, uh, pain, a, a very uh, chronic or visceral pain to sort of make us take stock of where we are and, and what's happening to us. And for Berg, it's this concussion that then precipitates these headaches. And then it's this um, very complex kind of exploration of who he who he really is, uh, which is what's so beautiful about the book. Um, so I talked to someone else about this book recently and realized that we kind of had a similar impulse after reading it or while reading it, and that was the urge to... Um, make things. Um, I think that you do such a beautiful job of talking about the serenity and the satisfaction in making. Um, he's making boats in this book with Alejandro, as you referenced. Um, can you talk about about that idea in the book? Yeah. I mean, I, I think sort of along the lines of what we were just discussing, craft work in a way can sort of uh, be a... Uh, mechanism to bring you into uh, yourself and into your body and into the moment um, because there is a, uh, uh, it, it necessitates that, you know, when you're cutting a, a joint for a boat, for example, uh, if you uh, make a cut too deep or too shallow, it, it has a real physical effect and um, uh, the extent to which you are not paying attention to the joint, uh, it, it will result in a worse joint. And so it's kind of a practice for, um, you know, uh, paying attention to uh, what you're doing. And that can have uh, really beneficial effects for other aspects of your life, too. And I think it, uh, it is, is very satisfying to uh, participate in. You're talking about it almost in a um, spiritual way. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. I think they're, I think they're related. Yeah. How can you talk more about that? 
Um, yeah, I, I think in in the uh, in the cultivation of awareness mainly. Um, you know, so yeah. often in our lives we're you know thinking about where we're going or where we've been before, and and we very rarely are actually uh, awake to what's happening to us. Um, and I think uh, as a result we tend to uh, misperceive things um, and and therefore misdiagnose them and mistreat them. Um, yeah. And so... When, or ignore are, them, yes. <laughs> or ignore them, yeah, or run from them. Um, and so that's certainly something that's happening to Berg. He's in pain, and one of the you know, first instincts we have when we're in pain is to shy away from it, to not look at it. Um, and so uh, learning to bring yourself to the reality of what's happening and, and be honest about what's happening, whether it's the nature of a joint that you're cutting or whether it's the nature of the, you know, psychic pain that you're experiencing in that right. moment right. Uh, is is a way of sort of uh, uh, approaching what's happening in an honest and hopefully more productive way. Yeah. I wonder if anyone else um, who's read the book has told you that they've felt like uh, working with their hands or making things. Is that a common response? You know, I haven't heard that, so, oh. but it's it's a great thing to hear. I'm I'm glad that the book uh, elicited that. It's exactly what I wanted to do when I uh, every time I kind of jumped back into into the book after putting it down for a moment, I wanted to uh, to do something. Um, so, you know, back onto the topic of making things. I wonder if you um, if you felt any parallels between uh, making boats and and the work that Berg is engaged in, and then writing. That's that's a whole different kind of making. Yeah. Um, how do how do you relate those things, or do you see yeah, them absolutely. differently? I mean, writing writing is both writing and boat building are creative acts. I think boat building has a lot more real world constraints. Um, you have to account for uh, the physical reality of the boat and the water. It has to float. It has to move forward. It has to capture the wind and harness it. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's, there's all sorts of uh, constraints that you're, you're dealing with in boat building. But there's also a lot of creativity. Um, a boat can take many different shapes. It can be built out of different kinds of wood. It can have a different kind of sail plan. Um, and so there's, there's lots of creativity, for, particularly for the designer, but also for the builder themselves. Oftentimes the designer is the, the builder as well. Um, to uh, uh, both be creative, but be creative within a framework. Um, writing, on the other hand, has less of a framework, depending on how you define, uh, you know, what writing is. But it, generally speaking, it's it's much more uh, free as a medium. Um, and so uh, there uh, are both benefits and challenges to that. Um, the the benefit is that you are you can uh, be more imaginative with with what you're doing, the, um, the you know, uh, challenge is that oftentimes it can be hard to tell what is essential or what is important. With a boat, it's kind of clear. There are, there are usually some pretty clear things that are right. essential and important. There's some you know, math it, behind it, right? There's yeah, some rules. there's some, some math. Rules. It needs to float. It can't have holes in it. Um, whereas with writing, you know, it's, uh, it's more up for debate. Um, but I think the, the thing that both of them have to my mind, is that um, they both reward uh, attention to detail. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, 
with writing, I think, it, along the lines of what I was talking about before with the joint, you know, the, the more uh, uh, close attention you pay to the cutting of a joint, probably the better it will be. And I think the same thing can be said for a sentence. And that means just sort of asking yourself, is this be, being honest with yourself about what a sentence is doing? Um, if it oftentimes we sort of we write something and we want it to be better than it is. So we keep moving uh, without actually, uh, you know, acknowledging the reality of the sentence or the character or that particular plot thread. Um, and so that's something that I think, and uh, craft work is something that doesn't allow you to fool yourself really about whether or not you've succeeded. Right. Um, you know, the, right. the joint either fits or it doesn't fit. And so it kind of uh, trains your attention in a way that is, I think, useful for writing and can be sort of transposed on, onto the writing process, um, uh, harnessing that kind of attention. Right. Um, and, and in the end, in, in both processes, you, you end up with um, something, something to yeah. show for your work, which I think is uh, one of the beautiful things about writing is when it is done and when you can look yeah. back at what you've done in the same way. And they go on and, and the project then kind of becomes its own thing too, which is interesting. And, and that's been an interesting experience of uh, th this is being my first book. It's, it's the first time I've sort of seen a book go out into the world and seen people interact with it and have their own experience with it um, and sort of uh, take different things away from it. And the same, Alejandro in the book actually says kind of a similar thing um, about his boats, which is that they, you know, they go on to lead these seafaring lives and someone buys them or, um, you know, uh, and, and takes them on trips or uh, they go and become this kind of workboat or that kind of workboat. Uh, and, and he sees them sort of almost as these animals that he's raised that then sort of go on and, and have yeah, a life. They have new lives. Yeah. yeah. What, has, um, what has surprised you about readers, either reaction to the book or, or what they've done with it or, or thought about it? Anything stand um, out? I think... I think I've just been surprised by how uh, people uh, have connected uh, with uh, Berg's experience. Um, I think that is, you know, something that you hope for, but is kind of hard to imagine um, when you are uh, when you're working on something that, you know, at various times in the process doesn't feel real or complete to you, um, and and to hear that. Uh, people felt uh, the uh, experience uh, of connecting to that character was ha has been really special and cool. That's beautiful to hear. We're talking to Daniel Gumbiner, author of The Boat Builder. Um, his book is on the National Book Award long list for fiction this year, 2018. And you're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Um, I think we're going to do a quick break and hear one of the songs that you selected for us. Um, it's called Everything I Want Takes Long by Salt Sons. And uh, when we get back, I would love, Daniel, for you to talk more about boats, because I, I feel like you keep referencing joints and things that I don't know much about. And it sounds like you know more about boats than me. So we'll talk boats after sure. the break. Yeah. Thank you. 
And we're back on the Living Writers Show. We're speaking to the author of The Boat Builder, Daniel Gumbiner. Um, Daniel, can you tell us a little bit about uh, why you chose that song? Is there a story behind it? Yeah, that's a, that's a song by um, the Salt Sons, who um, are a band out of West Marin. Um, and I think, uh, uh, you know, that is a it's a, it's a song that I've always related to, just the experience of, you know, uh, wanting uh, things that take forever and not having, not have, not feeling like you had the time to do everything that you wanted in your life. And it's, it's interesting. I, I chose it actually for this playlist that I wrote for all of these songs are from a playlist that I put together for uh, Large Hearted Boy, uh, which is a great blog. Um, and it, it, it's sort of supposed to be a companion playlist to the novel. And, and this, song in particular, I think, um, is relevant in relationship to the way uh, Berg, uh, see, the way Berg relates to Alejandro, his, his teacher. Um, he's sort of, he, he's both um, fascinated by Alejandro and um, inspired by him and also a little bit intimidated and overwhelmed by his expertise. And, and there's a sort of uh, at times he feels a bit defeated in in the sense that he will, you know, Alejandro has been doing this for so much longer than him, and he's so much better uh, than Berg at the work. Um, and, and Berg has this feeling of, you know, never being good enough, that he'll never be able to become a master in the way that Alejandro is a master. And so I think that song kind of brings that feeling to mind for me. You know, everything I want takes long. Um, this This feeling of, you know, uh, not being able to uh, achieve something uh, that you that you find beautiful, and I think the song sort of evokes the place where it was written and probably performed, right? That Northern California. Yeah, space. yeah. The the band is that band is from uh, West Marin. Yeah. Um, well, I, I talked before the break about uh, wanting to know from you about your experience with boats, so. I'm wondering, before you wrote this book, uh, what you knew about boats and making them and sort of how you came to have uh, the understanding that you do that's infused throughout the book and this experience of your character, Berg, learning it. Yeah, I know, you know, I wasn't raised on boats. I didn't really know that much about them, but I learned, you know, growing up by the water, I had some experiences on them and learned a little bit and had always been interested in boats. from a from a purely uh, romantic and <laughs> aesthetic sense, and uh, oh, several years ago, I heard about this boat building teacher who was out in Sausalito and was sort of uh, just uh, reading about him online and saw um, these images of his boats that were were just breathtaking, um, and I decided I would go. He he teaches a class on uh, Sundays. For sort of the uh, the layman um, mm-hmm. student, and uh, I decided I would go uh, check it out. 
and uh, went and enrolled in that class and ended up staying in it for over a year. Um, and uh, his, his name is Bob Dar, and uh, he, uh, in many ways, is the inspiration for the boat builder character in the novel, although he's not a, um, not a one-to-one representation of him. Alejandro is definitely a fictional character. Um, but so much of what I learned, I learned from Bob, and I learned through his class. Um, and, and then that sort of opened, once, once I was in Bob's class, it opened doors to different aspects of the uh, world of boats, which is a, a peculiar universe, as, as you can <laughs> sort of tell from the As you convey in the book. Yeah. So you enrolled in the class because of your interest in boats, not because you wanted to write a book about your interest Yes, in I did not know I wanted to write the yeah. book. Although pretty soon after meeting Bob, I had the idea. And that's in, in part because... Um, we would have these lunches together. Every, everyone in the class would sit at this um, uh-huh. uh, circular table in, in the shop, and, and we would just hang out and talk and tell stories. And you know, part of it was that Bob is just this uh, very uh, engaging storyteller. He tells these compelling stories. Um, but he was also telling stories about the place where I was from, which we just sort of glancingly mentioned, um, which is um, you know, Northern California. Um, particularly Marin County, and Bob grew up uh, uh, partly in Marin and partly in Tahiti because um, his father was a, a schooner captain who would sail tourists back and forth on these uh, charters. That's incredible. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, late, later in his life, Bob settled in this small town called Marshall, uh, which is on Tamales Bay, and he uh, opened a boat building shop. And so often times during lunch, he would, you know, tell stories about living out in uh, Marshall and, and building boats. And it, listening to those stories, the, the, it, I felt like they captured the, the feeling and uh, tone and texture of the place where I was from in a way that I hadn't necessarily heard communicated. It was kind of one of those things where you don't know what it sounds like until you hear it. Um, and that's when it first occurred to me that oh this could be a this could be a setting for a novel this is um you know something uh something that could work as as an origin point for a novel and that's so i i really moved from there from a setting um and so pretty pretty early on i had the idea to write the novel but i didn't go into his class knowing i was i was going to do that and then you took the class for a year and what are your your skills in boat building now um well i'm i'm definitely an amateur right um i can do i can do some basic things i was in i was in the class for about a year and a half but okay. yeah boat building is one of those things that um you know it's a it's a lifelong craft and so in that sense i relate to some of berg's experience of mm-hmm. and and part of what berg experiences in the book relates to my own experience of feeling like man there's so much here to learn and it's so great, and also it's going to take me forever. And uh, what do you do with that? Um, and so uh, that, right. that was definitely a part of my experience of, of learning the craft. That's kind of an uncomfortable place for some people, knowing how much they have to learn and how far yeah. behind they may yeah. be. Someone it can else. feel overwhelming. Yeah. I wonder if you wanted to speak a little bit about the mentorship aspect, because in the book, um, Alejandro is the senior boat builder 
Um, and I have to say, I was fascinated a moment ago when you referred to Bob Dar as maybe the inspiration for the character of the boat builder, because I, I kept switching in my mind back and forth between thinking the boat builder um, was Berg. Um, but it sounds like in your in your conception, the boat builder is only Alejandro. Um, so maybe you could speak to that a little bit. And then also um, talk about that mentorship piece, because I think that the relationship between those two is um, is really where... Um, is really the most fascinating part of the book and the, the lasting um, emotional strength of it. Um, yeah, it, it was important to me to sort of um, render a mentorship relationship that didn't um, feel, you know, uh, overly flattering or, or overly critical. Um, I think a lot of mentorship stories that were told uh, create the um give the give the mentor this feeling of being kind of like an oracle uh an all-knowing person to whom you know you you kneel at their feet and you study and that kind of thing um and i think as a result of that one personally when i when i was younger i sort of had that idea of my teachers and of my mentors i had i i you know felt the need i think to turn them into saints in in a kind of way and yeah and obviously they were just normal people with all of the normal human frailties that we have. And I think uh, as a result, I was incredibly disappointed when, when they proved themselves to be normal human beings. Humans. And yeah. there was kind of this, you know, fall from grace experience that I had. Um, and so having experienced that and, and now having sort of a different perspective on what it means to have a teacher, um, I, w- I wanted to represent something that, you know, both conveyed the the experience of meeting someone who knows a lot about something that you want to know, uh, which is a really beautiful, wonderful thing and, and sort of conveying some of the excitement of that and, and the joy of that. And at the same time, not turning that uh, character, in this case, Alejandro, into a, a saint-like figure. Um, and so that was something that was really important to me. And, and one of the most challenging parts of writing the book, I would say, was kind of striking a balance with that, being able to communicate both of those things at the same time. Um, I wonder if you have ever been on the other side of a mentorship relationship. Have you been a teacher or have you? I have, yeah. Yeah. How, how did that play into, how did whatever experiences you've had as a mentor or a teacher play into um, how you wrote these characters? That's a that's a really good question. I think um, I think it uh, you know certainly in my teaching work, having experience, having felt like I saw, um, having had those sort of fall from grace moments in my own mind, mm-hmm. I I think I always tried to uh, communicate myself as human to my students so that there there was sort of never any doubt about that. Um, the the challenge with that sometimes is then maybe your students start to take you less seriously. There's kind of a balance there in mm-hmm. of authority, your own authority, <laughs> right? Um, and so that is, that I think is the challenge that a teacher is faced. in In the case of the book, I think there is such a uh, there, there's already kind of a buy-in from Berg in that he wants to learn this thing that uh, Alejandro knows a great deal about objectively. Um, 
and so there's not there's not really any uh, risk of Berg not um, trusting Alejandro's authority. There is there is one part the the one thing that Berg sort of questions about Alejandro. I think is you know his uh, his own mental health. Alejandro is kind of seen as this marginal figure in the community. Some people think he's a genius. Some people think he's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is something that Berg has to approach and grapple with and think about over the course of the book. We're speaking to Daniel Gumbiner, who's author of The Boat Builder, and this is The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm your host, Amanda Yuli. Our engineer today is Frank Yuli. And um, I think we're going to do another little song break. And then maybe, Daniel, if you'd be good enough, you could read a little selection for us from sure. the book. Okay. Let's hear uh, May and Big Kitty. with The Living Writer Show. <clears throat> Excuse me. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to continue. We were talking about your novel, The Boat Builder, um, and the sort of mentorship relationship between um, Alejandro, who is the boat builder, and um, his mentee, uh, Berg, in the book. Um, and for me, you know, my reading of, of this book, I really felt this profound... Um, sense of forgiveness in the book like many times I kept seeing that and I don't know if that was um this is one of those things that will surprise you about a reader reaction or if this is one of the things that you intended but um I think that that was for me one of the most beautiful parts of um kind of diving into the book was that feeling that everybody wants that there's someone in the world who is going to sort of look after them and look beyond uh, mistakes they might make did you have any any plan for that um feeling to resonate in the book I didn't. And, you know, that's the first time someone has mentioned that, although I think it's a really um, astute observation. Um, but that is, I, yeah, I think, I think that is a part of, um, it's certainly something that Berg is looking for, and something that Berg right. needs. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah. He's so kind I, of I looking to forgive himself in some ways. And, um, it, it, again, by my reading. Yeah. Um, but I yeah, thought it was... And I think there are other figures in the book, too, who it makes me think of the uh, scene with Garrett where he's sort of rehashing all of his uh, life's mistakes. Right. Um, Garrett, Garrett is uh, one of Berg's bosses at the uh, um, charter boat company that he works for before he starts working with Alejandro. Um, but, yeah, I think that, I think that is uh, a significant thread in the book. 
Yeah, I mean, it, this is sort of the interesting part about a coming-of-age story for someone who's already maybe made mistakes and, and learned things because they're uh, in their mid-20s. Uh, but it's still about growing up, right? Yeah. Um, so we referenced before that you might read a selection, and I yeah. think this would be a great time to hear from you. Sure. Um, and you're welcome so, to kind of preview it a little bit for Yeah, so context. I'm, I'm going to read this section that's um, from sort of the middle of the book, uh, it's when Berg is just getting to know Alejandro and uh, is sort of uh, falling into his world for the first time. Um, and so I'll start right here. Berg guessed that Alejandro was around 65 years old. Every morning, he woke at sunrise and took a walk through the woods. When he returned from his walk, he had toast, eggs, and cowboy coffee and read the paper all the way through. Ufa, that's one of Alejandro's other apprentices. Rebecca, that's Alejandro's wife. And his children rose around the same time and joined him in the kitchen for breakfast. There was a jovial atmosphere to the farmhouse in the mornings, with Rebecca and all of the children discussing the farm-related work that needed to be done that day. On any given morning, the generator needed to be fixed, the irrigation and the tomato patch repaired, the animals fed, the goat's toenails clipped, the bread made, the cheese made, the sausage made, the cows milked, the fence by the chicken run mended, the pear trees pruned and inspected for blight, the soil temperature recorded, and someone needed to go into town to buy a five-gallon bucket. Alejandro said he was part Chilean, part Hawaiian, and part something else. He'd grown up in Tahiti in California, and his father had made his living chartering tourists back and forth from the west coast to Tahiti on a schooner named Hokulua. There was a large black and white photo of this boat in the shop. It hung above the workbench next to a photo of Ufa and Alejandro from many years ago. In that photo, the two men were standing in front of the rib cage of some small boat, both of them in overalls. Ufa looked very young in the photo. He couldn't have been more than 18 years old. The boat shop was a large, airy place. It was not entirely disordered, but you couldn't say it was orderly either. There were miscellaneous cans of turpentine and linseed oil, stacks of black locust and pepperwood and cedar, old paper coffee cups full of fasteners and bolts, and hundreds of tools, some of them in better shape than others. Several dogs came in and out of the shop, and Berg's favorite dog was named Swallow. She was a black gray mutt with long eyelashes and a runny snout. During the first week of his apprenticeship, she ate a dead squirrel, and it made her horribly sick. Berg found her behind the shop vomiting, but she seemed to be in good spirits. In between each heave, she would look up at Berg entirely unrepentant. I'd do it again, she seemed to be saying. I loved eating the squirrel, and I'd do it all again. Berg learned that many people in Tolinas believed Alejandro to be mentally ill. One day he ran into Joe Leggett in town, for example, and told him he was apprenticing with Alejandro. He hadn't seen Leggett since he stopped going to the tavern. Good luck with that, Leggett said. That guy's a quack. It was true that Alejandro was strange. His mind was borderless and kinetic. He'd sit down and talk to his six-year-old granddaughter for two hours and become entirely absorbed in the child's world. His yard was littered with broken-down cars and other detritus. Shortly after Berg met him, he became interested in pasteurizers and designed and built his own portable pasteurizer for Rebecca to use in the field. After that, he began carving Elizabethan lutes. He would stay in the shop after hours, working on these lutes that he didn't even know how to play. But Berg never doubted Alejandro's sanity because the first thing he'd seen was his work. 
his first experiences with Alejandro revolved around building, and everything Alejandro did matched. Everything fit. He was a master with hand tools, and his intellectual horsepower was astonishing. He would stay up late into the night, smoking hand-rolled cigarettes and drinking coffee and looking at lines. Lines are the, um, the designs of uh, uh, boats that uh, boat builders use. They, they come in three perspectives, and boat builders use them to sort of know how they're going to uh, construct the boat. Mm-hmm. Sort of like architectural plans for a house. Yeah. Berg would try to keep up with him for a few hours, but then he'd fatigue. The lines of American fishing boats are high art, Alejandro said. Americans are strange. We do certain things that are unfathomable, like sit in traffic. To me, this is evidence of mass psychosis, all of these people sitting in traffic. But the lines of American boats are both beautiful and practical. As much as Berg liked spending time with Alejandro, he felt inferior in his company. Alejandro was so confident and intelligent, his daily existence so full of life, that Berg felt intimidated. Alejandro never stopped investigating and questioning, and Berg, unfamiliar with even the basics of some of the issues Alejandro was exploring, struggled to keep up. About 30% of the time, he didn't understand what Alejandro was talking about, but he just kept hanging on, kept listening, like a foreigner trying to learn a new language. Much of Alejandro's work relied on sensory intelligence. He was able for example, to determine the exact moisture content of a piece of wood by smelling it. This was important because wood changed shape as it dried. If you did not accurately determine moisture content, you might end up with a boat that, after a couple years, had large gaps between its planks. Various species of wood had widely different structural properties and dried at different rates. You see, Alejandro would say, holding a cut of white oak to Berg's nose, you must know the smells for each wood. The way the wood was cut mattered, too. Most lumber was flat sawn, but Alejandro would quarter saw his lumber because it gave him more pieces of wood with vertical grain. This type of wood was less likely to shrink or develop checks. When a tree dries, Alejandro said, it is opening from the pith. Its rings are trying to flatten out. So a piece of wood with highly curved rings, a piece with horizontal grain, is going to move more than a piece of wood with flat rings or vertical grain. You must anticipate this. You must always be thinking about how the wood will change with time. Alejandro's professorial style was highly improvisational. After discussing the differences between vertical and horizontal grains, he might point to the floorboards of the shop, show Berg how they were horizontal grain and how they had checked. From there, he might explain how there was adobe under the floor of the shop, which would lead to a discussion of California's geology, which would segue into a commentary on the exceptionally hot lava of Kilauea, and move from there to a story about hula, the slow form of hula that his mother had practiced in Tahiti, which was distinct from the more common touristic version of the dance, all of this concluding somehow with a contemplation of the cello as an instrument, its merits and deficiencies. It was dizzying, but it was always interesting. I'll stop there. Oh, thank you. Uh, That was a selection from The Boat Builder by Daniel Gumbiner. Several things struck me about the passage that you read, um, Daniel. Uh, the first is just the utter reverence that you have uh, conveyed for making things, like we were speaking about earlier. I mean, from the descriptions in the in the shop to the list of the farm chores. I mean, I want to make bread after hearing that <laughs> the sort of list of like <laughs> the things that they do to sort of run the house and run the farm. Um, which is so beautiful. But the other thing that um, struck me is that um, 
your writing is funny. It, it's a it's a serious book and it's a it's an emotional book, um, but it's also one that um, is very deeply amusing in many spots. Like I was thinking of the dog saying, "I do it again." Yeah. <laughs> um, how did you how did you manage to balance that humor in uh, yeah, a book I like this? Yeah, it was important to me that the um, book have some you know element of comedy to it because I think all books that I like have some of element of comedy to them. And I think it's, uh, you know, a foundational part of the human experience. And so when a book doesn't have some, uh, you know, humorous element to me, it feels uh, two-dimensional in a way. Um, and I think, you know, also humor and, and uh, comedy are really uh, uh, vital and common ways of, dealing with uh, suffering and uh, pain. And so I think uh, because this this book is, uh, that's sort of the primary concern of this book in a lot of ways is this, uh, Berg's struggle with chronic pain and, and addiction. And so it, it felt doubly important to sort of have uh, to, a humorous element involved in, in the telling of the story. It's good to hear you talk about it that way because um, I think this might be the first novel I've read that has anything to do with the opioid crisis at all. You know, I've read plenty of news articles on it. Um, but what's so pleasurable about the book is that it's a human experience and it doesn't feel in any way like a, you know, homework assignment on a, this current events issue. It feels like an emotional um, journey of a of a character in a beautifully written novel. So um, it's it's nice to have those moments of comedy and other things that uh, illuminate it in other ways. Um, and, you know, another thing that, that struck me when you were reading it again is that, um, as I said before, the book uh, is this beautiful world that you've created that I think readers... Um, love to be in and inhabit that world of the small town and the shop, um, and the water. Um, yeah. and so I actually think it's, that's somewhat rare in, uh, contemporary fiction to create such a, um, such a pleasure, pleasurable and a pleasant, uh, world that, that, uh, that readers can, can dive into. Do you, do you find that in comparison to other sort of contemporary novels? Yeah, I think, in many cases, it, it's in part due to, um, I think, uh, just the sort of uh, distracting nature of our moment, um, right. where we're, we're so globalized and so diverted by so many different uh, sources of uh, information. And uh, it's, it's kind of rare to, uh, I think, inhabit stay in a place uh, for a long period of time, but I think that is, uh, can be really valuable to do. And it was definitely sort of an, an experience I wanted to create. And it's, it's part of what Berg is learning too about uh, right. the experience of being grounded in a place and grounded in community. I think he is someone who has been, whose attention has sort of been diverted. Uh, and, and part of what he learns from Alejandro that is something that Alejandro values very deeply is the experience of being uh, in one place, knowing the place, knowing the people of the place. Um, and so uh, 
Berg is sort of learning that through the process of working and living with him. And so I think it's something you also kind of vicariously experience through as a reader through the book. Right. It's just a joy to read it that way. Um, I want to talk about uh, where kind of the natural world fits into this book, um, because I, when I was reading it, I was reflecting on people like Rick Bass or, you know, people who's uh, for whom the land and the sea are, um, are heavy players in, uh, in the narrative. And, and that's how I felt about it. And I know that you grew up in Northern California. And I wondered if you could speak about that part a little bit. Yeah, I I think I spent a lot of time outside as um a kid and that was a really formative part of my experience and um definitely one of the things that uh resonated with me about um sort of what i was mentioning before about listening to bob's stories was um you know the extent to which they captured this particular mood and feeling of the landscape and what it what it kind of feels like to be sitting uh on the bay in, in Tamales, um, and, or to, you know, walk on Mount Tamalpais and in the summer and that kind of thing. Um, and so I, I wanted to, that, that was really the, the starting point of the book was wanting to capture that texture and that mood because it, um, felt like such an important part of my life and my experience and also something that I hadn't really seen, uh, represented too often. Um, and so that was, uh, yeah, it was a really foundational part of what um, I think made me want to write the book in a way. Beautiful to hear. We're, we're speaking to Daniel Gumbiner, who's author of The Boat Builder. And we're going to hear one song, one, one more, a little break in our conversation on the Living Writers Program, and then we'll be back. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks. If you're too scared To make love, I'm sorry It's terrifying to me too But I don't keep living So I can keep thinking about doing what I want to do Welcome back to the Living Writers Show, uh, Daniel Gumbiner. I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about um, the process of writing the Boat Builder, and um, maybe in doing so, you referenced you are a teacher. Sometimes, if you could even provide some advice for aspiring or new novel writers who might be listening. Yeah, this was a book I, I worked on the um, initial draft for about two years. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, for me, something that was really important process-wise was just engaging with the material every day. I think when you are, you know, 
people have different approaches. Obviously, some people don't uh, necessarily feel like working on a, a long-term project every day. But for me, um, the experience of just sort of even even if I was just uh, opening the Word doc and reading a little bit from it, not necessarily mm-hmm. even adding or changing anything, but just to sort of keep the world on my mind so that in my uh, sort of waking moments, uh, things would occur to me. Um, and that was where oftentimes a lot of the uh, book developed is I would be sort of walking around with it in my head throughout the day and I'd see something and it would be an answer to an, uh, you know, uh, problem in, in the text that had previously seemed uh, opaque or, or hard to get around. Um, and so I think that, that was that was a crucial thing for me, just to keep stay engaged with it. I, I tried to write one book before this um, that I stopped working on. Uh, and I think I, I think I mostly stopped working on it because I just lost interest. And, and the main reason I lost interest, I think, is because I was trying to um, make it into this preconceived, the, the preconceived idea that I had of it. Um, and so I think an, another thing that working every day allowed me to do was to just sort of stay open to um, whatever uh, occurred to me and, and follow that. Uh, that's, that's another thing that I think was really important to the process of it was just sort of keeping an eye on what was interesting to me, even if it seemed like it didn't necessarily relate to the story. Um, I think over time, as you start to uh, accrue those different uh, components of the world that are interesting to you, it forms something of a coherent vision, even if it doesn't feel coherent at the time or if you don't think it's coherent. Um, And so that was, those were sort of two important parts of the process for me, just touching touching the story every day um, and then also just following the things that I was interested in and staying aware of that and awake to the, the stuff that captured my interest. I love the, that part of the process when you talk about following the story and being awake to it, um, which is so much like what we were talking about before with, you know, attention and, um, and uh, focus, uh, which is different. You know, sometimes you talk to writers and they are people who have index cards and plans and like it's, they, they know exactly what needs to happen, you know, in the book before they write it. And then I think equally as often you meet writers like what you're talking about who just follow. Um, do you think, do you ever plan your writing meticulously like some people do? I I think I plan sections, but for me, the, the joy of the work is learning something about myself and kind of interrogating my own mind and experience and, uh, finding stuff that I didn't know was there. And there's a lot of stuff in this book that I didn't know was there when I was working on it. Um, and that's both the, that's the great part of working on a, a piece of writing and also the scary part. Cause you don't know exactly what you're going to find yeah. and you don't know, um, if it's going to be interesting or, um, you don't know anything about it. Um, and so, uh, for me, I think if I were to plan, things completely out, it would eliminate that component for me, which really mm-hmm. feels like the one of the motivating factors for for doing it. And you have to be open to it, kind of be ready for it, right? Uh, which yeah. You are. Um, so 
how I wonder if you could speak about the experience when you were you were saying you were in the document or in the book in your mind every day for you said two years on the initial draft and I'm sure it was more time after that um, and then now that the book is out in the world and it is on the long list for the National Book Award for Fiction so many more people have read it um, and have spent a lot less time with it than you have um, is that kind of a surreal experience with your first book yeah, it is an interesting, it, it's a strange part of writing a book that it takes so long to write it and people engage, the, the consumption of it is quite quick um, right. and should be, you know, I think it's, if it, if it's incredibly, if it takes someone as long to read the book as it took you to write it, then there's something oh, wrong. Something's wrong. Yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, yeah, it it is a uh, interesting experience to sort of let go of it and Especially, you know, you mentioned there's more time after you finish writing. There's, you know, the editing time, and then there's the time of the publication process, the lead up to the book actually coming out into the world. And so in many ways, I had sort of moved on from the world of the book in my own mind um, and, you know, was working on a different project. And it was an interesting experience coming back to it and remembering it. It was almost like reading, you know, an old journal from, uh, mm -hmm. you know, childhood or something, but a, a little less removed. Mm -hmm. um, and just sort of reconnecting to the pieces of the story and, and looking at them anew from, from this different vantage point in my life. So it was an interesting experience to kind of put the book out into the world um, after, after that long period of engaging with it right. as a writer. Were you, can you remember anything that you were reading in particular while you were writing the book? Yeah, a big influence on this book, and actually, I draw the uh, epigraph at the beginning of the book from uh, this text is where uh, E.B. White's letters. Um, that's like this 700-page uh, book of all of his letters, and it's just incredible. It's 700 pages, but by the time I finished, I was just like, "That's it. There aren't <laughs> there aren't any more E.B. White letters. He didn't write any more." Um, and you know, his the way. Uh, you know, obviously he's most famous for writing children's books, but also had a very prolific, accomplished career as a writer for adults, both writing, you know, news breaks for The New Yorker. He was one of their yeah. first staff writers and, um, you know, uh, writing the elements of style. Wrote, he, he wrote a bunch of different stuff. Uh, and just sort of the, the sensibility uh, in those letters, the attention to detail of everyday life and and the humor with which he lived in the world was so infectious and was a big influence on me in terms of uh, thinking about the sound and feel of the book. That's great. To close our, our show every week, we ask writers to recommend uh, some titles for listeners to read, some other things. So it sounds like E.B. White's letters, all 700 pages of them, are on your list of recommended reading. <laughs> yeah, I definitely recommend that. Anything else Another on your book mind? I read recently that I loved, a new book that just came out, is uh, Early Work by uh, Andrew Martin. That's a, a novel um, from SSG. Uh, uh -huh. And it's, not, you know, it's one of these books where there's not that much happens, and so I can't really reel you in with a, uh, you know, uh, delectable uh, plot <laughs> summary, but uh, 
it is just a gorgeous piece of writing, um, incredibly funny, incredibly perceptive, uh, and fresh, and very, very much feels of this moment. So I really uh, recommend that book. Great suggestion. We will all go find it. Um, and we will also, if we haven't already, find The Boat Builder, which is out on McSweeney's. Um, and it is in, on the long list for the National Book Award um, this fall. Daniel Gumbiner, it was such a pleasure to speak with you about this book and about your it, writing. Yeah, it was so great, Amanda. Thank you so much for your questions. They were Thank great. Thank you. We'll close the show with the last song that you selected for us and say see you again next time, Daniel. Thank you. Take care. I'm an adult, I'm an adult, I'm an adult The little one stepping down on my knees saying Feed me I'm an adult, I'm an adult, I'm an adult So I can do what adults do and that's Have another adult or two Shopping malls grow resentful. I'm an adult, I'm an adult, I'm an adult. The little ones, they'll be down on my knee. I remember when that was me. It starts off slowly, but it builds up in steam. It starts off subtle. Sweet. It puts lines in our faces, pads in our dreams, and lights up the sunrise. It puts joy in our screams. Scream.
You took the first step and quit smoking. But even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why Save by the Scan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council.